So, would you please raise your hand if you know who Elon Musk is? What about Simone Biles? Taylor Swift? Mr. Beast? All right. You can lower your hands. If somebody asks you, who is this Elon Musk guy? How would you answer? How well do you actually know him? What he values, what motivates him, how he treats people around him. How do you get to know somebody that you cannot talk to? Well, you can watch or read the news about them, or you can uh, perhaps read their biography. Now, let's say that you want to know who Jesus is. How would you get to know him? Well, you read his biography in the Bible, right? Well, in fact, we as a church are going through his biography as written by Dr. Luke. And as we have been reading Luke's account in the past few weeks, we see that Jesus is becoming more and more popular. His miracles are mind-blowing. The way he talks, the way he teaches, the way he treats people around him, they are, they are all appealing and intriguing. People want to be around him. They want to listen what he has to say as they wonder, who is this Jesus? In the passage of today, we find Jesus himself asking this question, who do you say I am? How would you answer that question? Who do you say Jesus is? Now, you know, may not realize this, but that's probably the most important question you ever would have to answer in your life. And I'm not using hyperbolic language. I really mean it. Who do you say I am? Jesus asks you today. And as we read Luke chapter 9, verses 10 through 27, pay attention and look for answers to this most critical and fundamental question. So please open your Bibles in the Gospel of Luke chapter 9. We'll start reading in verse 10. This is the Word of God. Verse 10, on their return, the apostles told him, that's Jesus, all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him. And he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men, and he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and have them all sit down. 
and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. Verse 18. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah. And others, that one of the prophets of all has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, would you open our eyes and our understanding and our ease and illuminate our minds to see who Jesus is, to know him, to know who he is. We pray this in dependence on you to do that. Amen. Now, this passage offers two answers to the question, who is Jesus? Number one, Jesus is the provider who supplies for my needs. And we'll see that from verses 10 through 17. He's the provider who supplies for my needs. And answer number two, Jesus is the Christ of God who suffers and dies for me. Jesus is the Christ of God who suffers and dies for me. And we'll read that or learn that from verses 18 through 27. So let's start with answer number one. Who do you say Jesus is? Number one, Jesus is the provider who supplies for my needs. So let's go back to where we started, the beginning of verse 10. On their return, the apostles told him, all that they had done. Now, we need a little bit more of context to understand what uh, the Scripture is here saying. As you may recall from the passage last week, Jesus had sent out his disciples to proclaim the kingdom of God. 
He has given them power and authority over demons and to cure diseases. So we read in verse 6, And they departed and went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everyone. He told them, Go and preach about the gospel. Go and tell them about the kingdom of God. Go and heal people. So now in verse 10, the apostles return from their short mission trip and tell Jesus all that they have done. They, they are excited how the demons submitted to their authority, how they were healing people everywhere, all those two signs of the kingdom of God breaking through and how they've been preaching the gospel to them. At this point, Jesus takes his disciples away from the busyness. But verse 11, when the crowds learn it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. So Jesus takes the disciples apart, but the crowds still follow him. And when they do that, he doesn't get irritated or angry at them. He doesn't tell them, come on, stop following me. I want to be alone. All the opposite. He actually welcomes them and keeps doing the same work that he had sent his disciples to do. And actually, the work that he himself had been commissioned by his father to do. He tells them of the kingdom of God and cure those who need healing. Verse 12, Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. So in the story, the day is expiring, the sun is declining, and it's getting late. And the disciples start getting worried and nervous. Jesus, they say, this is a large crowd. It has been a long day. They are probably very tired and hungry. And we're so far, far away from any Costco Safeway. In fact, we are in such a remote place. There's no even a Wawa here, Jesus. Please send them away. Send the crowd away. Now, I don't know how is it for you, but for me, being tired and hangry is a really bad combination. It is a recipe for disaster. When I am hungry and tired, I get grumpy and irritable and harsh. You don't want to be around me when I'm tired and hungry. Now, we have here a large crowd with many people getting tired and hungry, and this can get really, really interesting, and that's why the disciples say to Jesus, send the crowd away. Well, let's say what Jesus says, verse 13, but he said to them, you give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. You see, sometimes Jesus pushes his disciples over the edge, but he always does that with a purpose. No, he says, let's not send them away. You give them something to eat. And the disciples come back, are you out of your mind, Jesus? <laughs> we do not have enough food. There are barely five loaves of bread and two fish, but what is that for this such a large crowd? 
We will need to go somewhere and buy food for all of them, and this is not a small crowd. Verse 14, For there were about 5,000 men, and he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and had them all sit down. Now, in these verses, the math is laid out and presented to us in a way that is super easy to understand the picture. There is five loaves of bread, and there's 5,000 people. That's a five and three zeros. And they all are sitting in groups of 50, five zero, okay? When trying to explain this miracle, some people think maybe the loaves of bread were so big that they were able to feed the crowd. Yes, right? Imagine the size of a bread that can be divided into a thousand pieces and each piece able to satisfy the appetite of a single man and his family. You can tell right away, simple math is not going to work here, not even with imaginary numbers. Now, that's a geeky joke. If you don't know what an imaginary number is, ask your math teacher or an engineer. But speaking of imaginary, can you imagine how it would be to be experiencing this scene in real life? How would it feel to be with, with a large crowd of people all sitting down on the field getting hungry for dinner? Well, I experienced that once. Sort of. Some of you may have heard about the TV series called The Chosen, which is about the ministry of Jesus. In that TV series, there's one episode about the feeding of the 5,000. And I was an extra in the crowd. Yes, I was an extra. I'm not making this up. And I have pictures to prove it. So here I am with the crowd, and there were a lot. And now in the next picture, I'm here with the director and his wife, and they are wearing T-shirts with numbers five and two for five loaves and two fish. Now, I could not get a picture with the actor that plays Jesus, but at least I got one with his double made of cardboard. You may not be able to see in the picture, but that's a cardboard. That's not the actor that plays Jesus. In any case, overall, was an awesome experience to be around a large crowd of people with kids and dads and moms all sitting down in this remote place. Now, back to our story. That gave me a, a picture. If, if a crowd this size of 5,000 families is going to be fed with five loaves of fish, sorry, five loaves of bread and two fish, a truly remarkable miracle has to happen. Read with me verse 16. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. So now Jesus takes the five loaves of bread 
and the two fish and holds them and he looks up to heaven where his father dwells in an act of reverence and dependence of his father. And Jesus blesses the food and he breaks the loaves of bread and he gives them to the disciples. You see, there's no a hidden trick here. There's no an act of illusion. It is all done in front of their eyes. They carry the pieces that Jesus has given them with their own hands as they go and deliver and distribute the pieces of bread to the whole crowd, to everyone. Verse 17, and they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. So the disciples walk around the field, giving them bread. And they give it to everyone, not to a few, not to some, but to all 5,000 men and their families. They all eat and get full. Nobody says, I'm still hungry. They get doubles and triples until they are completely and fully satisfied. <laughs> and to top it all, they get 12 baskets of leftovers. Each of the 12 disciples could have taken home one basket full of leftovers. This is actually incredible. This is a, a miracle of epic proportions. Now, if you recall last week, we read that Jesus, when he was sending his disciples at the beginning of chapter 9, he tells them, take nothing for the journey. No staff, no bag, no bread. No money. And as Dr. Red, the preacher, said last week, he pointed out that Jesus wanted his disciples to trust in the providence of God to supply for their needs. Today's story reinforces this picture of God as provider, but in the passage of today, it makes it clearly and explicit. It portrays Jesus himself as mediator of the Father's provision. Jesus and his Father in heaven act in unison, miraculously providing for the needs of the people to fully satisfy their need for food. Who do you say I am? Asks Jesus. Answer number one, Jesus, you are the provider who supplies for our needs. But our needs go far beyond physical bread and food as it will become evident with answer number two. Who is Jesus? Answer two, Jesus is the Christ of God who suffers and dies for me. Let's go now to verse 18. Now it happened that as he was pre praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? There is a change of scenery. They are first with the crowd in the first scene, and now he's praying alone. But with him, he takes his disciples. And as he prays, he calls them. And he asks them, who do the crowds say 
that I am. Verse 19, and they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of the old has risen. You see, the crowds have all sorts of theories about who Jesus is. Again here, if you recall the message last week, even Herod, the tetrarch, the king of Judea, is asking this question about the Jesus. Who is this? He says. Some people think he's John the Baptist. But John the Baptist was beheaded by Herod. Some people think that he's Elijah. And others think that he's a prophet from all who came back to life. But verse 20 then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. So now Jesus changed the attention from the crowd to his disciples. And he gets a very aimed and direct question, but who do you say I am? And Peter replies, you are the Christ of God. Now, somehow Peter has this momentary lapse of brilliance. This is the very first time in the Gospel of Luke that any of the disciples recognize Jesus as the Christ. Peter says, you're not John the Baptist. You're not Elijah. You're not a prophet from old. You are the Christ of God. Now, Christ is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah, which means the anointed one. It is a royal title that links Jesus with King David. Christ is the promised king who is expected to restore the glory of the kingdom of Israel. So when Peter says, you are the Christ of God, he probably pictures the promised king who will deliver them from their enemies. So Jesus changed his attention from the crowd to the disciples. And now, let's change the attention to you. Who do you say that Jesus is? Deep inside, at the core, who do you truly believe that Jesus is? How you personally, not your dad, not your mom, not your grandma, but you, how you answer that question personally will mark your eternity. Your eternity depends on how you answer this question. Perhaps you don't even care who Jesus is. Or maybe you think he's just a nice guy, an eloquent teacher, a great example for humanity, a historic figure, a good model to follow. No, he's not just that. Jesus is the Christ of God, the Messiah, the King who will deliver us. Verse 21, 
And he is strictly charged and con commanded them to tell this to no one. Why not to tell anyone? If he is Christ, the king, why hide it? Why not announce to all the king is here, the Savior has come to restore the kingdom, to deliver his people? Why? Although he's indeed the promised king, he would show the world that his kingdom is fundamentally different from the kingdom of men. He's not a political leader, but the Christ of God had a conquering strategy that no creature fully understood. A veiled plan that went beyond Israel. A veiled plan that actually had cosmic magnitude. And Jesus continues saying in verse 22, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Although he is Christ the King, he must suffer and be rejected by the religious leaders of his time who were supposed to know the, the law of God and understand who this Jesus is, but they didn't. They rejected him. They hated him. They made him suffer, and ultimately they killed him. They executed Jesus on a cross as if he was a vile criminal. Why? Why would the king of the universe have to be crucified and suffer such an unthinkable death? Why? Well, it will become evident in a few moments, but for now, verse 23. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now let's assume that I believe that Jesus is the Christ of God, the promised king. So the question is, how do I come after him? How do I become part of his kingdom? This is the answer that Jesus gives. If you want to come after me, he says, deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. Take up my cross daily? What does he mean by that? Perhaps that phrase is not really surprising to you or, or very shocking. I mean, after all, Jesus died on a cross, so taking up yours kind of makes sense, right? However, have you considered that at this very moment where Jesus says these words, take up your cross daily, he had not actually died on the cross yet? In fact, the reference to a cross was really shocking, even disgusting for the original audience. You see, the cross was a cruel method of execution adopted by the Romans, and it was reserved for foreigners or slave criminals that were convicted of murder of rebel or rebellion. Both the Romans and the Jews despised the cross intensely. Romans rejected the cross for it, is a shameful, it was in a shameful association with the execution of low criminals. 
The Jews despised the cross because a man hanged on a tree was considered as cursed by God according to the law. So the words of Jesus will sound like this today. If you want to come after me, sit on the electric chair daily and follow me. The electric chair? Why? Why would Jesus ask me to sit on the electric chair daily? The image of an electric chair is not actually pretty. It's not inspiring. It's not a symbol of selfless sacrifice. It is an extreme and horrifying way of executing really, really bad criminals. Can you actually witnessing someone being electrocuted to death? The images that come to mind are disturbing, repulsive. It is a shameful way to die reserved for people who have been so evil that they deserve to be executed in such an awful way. Why would Jesus ask me to sit on the electric chair daily? Why? To help answer that question, this is, this is what John Stott says in his book, The Cross of Christ. To take up your cross is to put oneself into the position of a condemned man on his way to execution. To see myself as a condemned man on his way to execution. I have to admit, I do not fully grasp this. When I think about myself, I do not think as myself as being someone so evil that deserves an electric chair. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not deluded. I know I am not perfect. I know that I have blind spots. I know that sometimes I get angry at my kids and my wife. I know that sometimes I can be quietly proud. And probably you too. But as a whole, when I think about myself, I really think that I'm not that bad. I'm not that evil. In general, I am a good guy, especially compared to the rest. To daily think of myself as a condemned criminal deserving to be executed requires some significant spiritual illumination. To consider myself as a criminal contradicts how I perceive myself. It certainly strongly opposes the mainstream culture of our day. What you will hear in the media, what you will hear every day from the world is this, to think of yourself as somebody good and extremely worthy and, and valuable to project an inflated image of yourself so you can realize the best version of who you can be. But that's not how the Bible portrays me. And that is not how the kingdom of God works. 
for the kingdom of God is an upside-down kingdom. Verse 24, for whoever will save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. If you want to save your life, you have to lose it first. You have to abandon yourself to the mercy and the grace of God and stop trying to earn your worth by your own efforts. You have to consider yourself as a dead man, as condemned to death, so you may live. You have to lose your life if you want to save it. Verse 25, for what does it profit? A man, if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. So let's say that you think of yourself as a moral person. You are respected and admired. You work hard to keep the rules and earn your way up. Would that matter at the end? When the king comes back in his glory to judge everyone? Would it matter if you gain the respect and admiration of the whole world while ignoring and being ashamed of the words of Jesus? When you get in front of the holy judge presenting your accomplishments and your good works only to learn that they were not good enough and that you did not make it, when you hear from his mouth the dreadful verdict, depart from me, you worker of lawlessness, What Jesus is telling you today is if you really want to come after me, if you want to join my kingdom and save your life, do not cling to your own moral accomplishments. Deny yourself day by day. Remember and see yourself as a condemned criminal who deserves to be executed. Take up your cross daily, die to self, and then follow me. Despite how good I perceive myself to be, the Bible seems to imply a different reality of my moral standing before God. Why is it that in the Bible and in the passage that we just read, the king of all kings, the most powerful, omnipotent, perfect, and holy God had to come to this earth, taking human form to suffer as a man, to be rejected, to be killed, and executed as a vile criminal. Why? 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 Because my sin required it. Because when all the good and bad is added and subtracted, my morality before God is so corrupted, so filthy, so defiled, that in light of the infinite holiness of God, I am a vile criminal that justly, righteously, and eminently deserves to die and to be executed on the electric chair, to be shamefully crucified so the world will see and learn about the immaculate, incorruptible justice of a holy God. But here comes the king the Christ of God, my Savior. And he stops the prosecution. 
and he says, I will take it for him. I will stand from my, so, from my seat of throne, from my throne, and I will sit on the chair in his place. I will sit on that electric chair. I will take up his cross. I will shamefully die and be executed in his place. I will die for him so he will live. Who do you say Jesus is? Who do I say Jesus is? Number one, Jesus is my provider who supplies for all my needs, physical and spiritual, including my need for a savior who will rescue me from imminent death. And number two, Jesus is the Christ of God, the king who suffered and died in my place, but after three days, raised victorious with my freedom my eternal freedom in his hand. Hallelujah. Oh, Lord. To just think about who you are. How omnipotent and great and holy you are. To think that you would come to this world and suffer. And be rejected. And be killed for me. It's something that none of us can fully comprehend. Would you be kind to us to remind us every day where we came from, to remember every day that apart from your mercy, Lord, we truly are sinners, criminals before your holiness. who deserve to be executed. But in your mercy and your kindness, you came and you saved us. So, so we remember that every day, not to, not to remain condemned, but to remember how merciful, how graceful you are every day of our lives. We don't have to fear your wrath. because it was consumed by your son. Thank you. We praise you.